Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Well, how are you guys doing today? See, we have some early birds, early risers here this morning. Congratulations, as Austin said, for making it on daylight savings time. You have sprung forward, and now you will get to enjoy a longer, more beautiful evening, and we're grateful for some of that. So if you're a guest with us today, I don't know what life circumstances propelled you to come to service this morning, but I hope that maybe you can take a little bit of an exhale, realizing that you're surrounded by other normal, struggling individuals. And then for any of our long timers here, we don't want you to think that you're forgotten or overlooked. Whether you're online or in person, your presence here absolutely matters. And we're grateful that you spend a portion of your weekend worshiping and learning and being together here with us. My name is Jed, and it's a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, we are continuing in our study through the life of Moses. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 18 through 31. We've got some Bibles in the back. You can pull out your phone. We'll also have these up on the screen for you. And I'd like to start with a launching question. It's also your first fill-in for your note sheet. What do we do when our Bibles get weirder? Okay, not what do we do when our Bibles get weird. What do we do when our Bibles get weirder? Now, the word weird is really interesting. If you've ever studied its etymology a long, long time ago, there was actually more of a specialness to that word. It didn't have that odd connotation, and then it eventually developed into something that seemed a little bit used for something mysterious. And then nowadays, when we say the word weird, well, we just know what we mean. We mean that's odd. That, that gets us. What do we do when our Bibles get weirder? Now, last week, if you were here with us, I'd encourage you to go back if you weren't. Britt taught on that scene where Moses has that encounter with the burning bush, right? And he is encountered by the Lord, Yahweh, and he is revealed to him that he is going to go back to this place that he hasn't been in 40 years, Egypt, a place that he was running away from, and that he is going to be a part of delivering the children of Israel out of captivity, and it's an odd, weird scene, but Brett does a really good job making that incredibly relatable when he speaks to the questions and the excuses that Moses, as an 80-year-old man, would rightfully have about his role in this wild, wild story. But this past week, when I was at Target, it got me thinking a little bit more about this section that we're in and a little bit of a metaphor that can be used to what we want to potentially guard against when we get to really odd, weird sections of Scripture like we're going to encounter today. Now, I was at Target, and I was there for dog food and water. But like most trips to the store, the next thing you know, I'm looking at something that's totally unrelated to dog food and water, and I find myself 
on my knees looking at these Nintendo Switch video games for Mario and Luigi and Yoshi, and you're like, Jed, I didn't know that you play video games. I don't. Therefore, my little boys, and even though I'd rather have them play outside, I'm still that dad that for whatever reason, it's like I'm called into that aisle just in case I want to surprise them with something that I'm going to contradictorily not want them to play. But either way, I'm there and I'm looking at these Mario and Luigi games, and then I turn around, and in this section of the aisle, suddenly I see these Kindle Fire Sticks. Have you guys heard of those? You know, maybe 15 or so years ago, if I said Kindle Fire Sticks, you'd think that I was preparing for a camping trip. But it's these TV slayers, and then beneath the cable television slayers, there's this big box. And I'm thinking, what in the world is this gadget? It's 200 or so dollars. And I flip it, and it's a projector. I thought, well, that's, that makes sense. That makes sense that there would be a projector underneath the Kindle Fire Sticks. I have neither of those things. I'm still getting used to this large television that was gifted to us. But it made me think about this thing that we can unintentionally do when we come to Scripture that I was building that small little illustration on. We can naturally project onto the Scripture. And we know what projectors do. The goal is to get this image and this narrative and this story onto this blank wall or screen or bedsheet if you're having fun in your backyard with your kids. But when we come to our Bibles or when we come to life, oftentimes we unintentionally but understandably project onto these words. And in psychology, we actually call that projection right? Not just to text, but to people or individuals. We can find ourselves in situations where our own personal histories, our insecurities, our narratives, our desires, those things we even disdain about ourselves, we can unintentionally cast those onto the people around us. A way of almost purging out some of the discomfort unconsciously. But, but sometimes we come to this text and because it's so foreign, we are foreigners to it, because this ancient library of all of these books and literature from a few thousand years ago can feel so far away from us, we, we just, we throw onto it an image that we want it to be. And this morning, I had Austin only read up to verse 21, and I spared him a little bit from some of us, what else we're going to see this morning, but we're just going to walk through this narrative together. Are you guys prepared to do some of that today? Well, here is your next fill in the blank. It comes from the part that Austin just read. Commentators seem to find that Moses, for whatever reason, tells his father-in-law a fib. Okay, you know what a fib is, you know, maybe a little white lie, maybe not the whole truth. We find this in verse 18. Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go back to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still living. And we know this isn't the whole story, right? Moses was just working for his father-in-law as a shepherd as he had done for several decades, and he's encountered by that bush that's on fire perpetually. Right? And in this bush, we see that the Lord reveals himself to him with a divine name. And our translations tend to see this as, in all caps, we see the Lord. But other ways we understand what we've called Yahweh is, I am who I am. Right? When Moses says, what am I supposed to say when they ask me who sent me? The Lord says, I am who I am. 
Another popular way, or less popular, I should say, version of that for us, even though it would have been more understood back then, was I will be what I will be. I will be what I will be. And Moses goes to Jethro, and he doesn't say, hey, pops, uh, I am that I am, or I will be what I willed me, is having me go back to that place that I was running away from 40 years ago because I killed a dude. So would it be okay if I took your daughter and your two grandsons back to that place? Uh, because I'm actually going to lead a revolution of sorts for my oppressed people. I cannot even imagine what Jethro would have said. Maybe that's why Moses didn't do that. Some commentators really get hung up on this point, but that's far from the point of this little narrative. So can we continue to move? Is that okay? All right, so here's your next fill in the blank. God tells Moses he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Has anyone studied this passage before? You know, maybe you have or you've heard other people share about it. This is the part where we tend to feel like things are getting a little bit weird. How do we deal with God telling Moses that he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Now, this is the first of 20 instances that we will find where Pharaoh's hard, stubborn, unrepentant heart will be alluded And what's interesting is that even though in this section, God is the agent that says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In other places, that verb there is a little bit more obscure. Other times it seems like Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Other times it's just something that happened in the past. And for whatever reason, people throughout the centuries have made this their point of emphasis. This is the weird thing that they want to talk about. And it kind of makes a little bit of sense because oftentimes when we look at our lives, we're, we're trying to figure out what does God have to do with this. And so theologians over the centuries, particularly in only the last few hundred years, they have stepped into this text and they've used it as a battleground or an arena of sorts where they would debate things like predestination or free will or how determined our lives are, whether or not there's some combination of these things. And so they'll take this little bit of this story. Pharaoh's hard heart and God's movement there, and they'll start extrapolating all sorts of things. It seems like there's a projecting onto this text our concerns and our uncertainties. But for the earliest listeners and readers and hearers of this story, God's activity The wildness of it isn't something that they're necessarily going to get hung up on because do you remember how Yahweh reveals himself, how the Lord reveals himself to Moses? What does he say? What is his name? I am that I am or what? I will be what? I will be. In other words, deal with it. That's really, really difficult. It's incredibly difficult. Now, I'm not to say, and I'm, we're going to get to some other parts, but there's so much in this text. We'll see in the very next verse that's, that, that's tough and weird and odd. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. So I'd say that even though we can get hung up on this, and that's as far as Austin read, there's a lot more here. Are you guys prepared to keep going? Hesitantly. (laughs) Oh no. And then in verse 22, 
The Lord says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, Let my son go that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. It's ramping up here, you guys. We went from this story where it's fun to talk about the excuses that we have in our lives and what God is calling us toward. And then suddenly Moses is going back to his father in law and he's about to embark on this journey. And God is speaking to him on the way. And we have this scene where it says that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. We can get hung up on that stuff. But then we see this. Let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. I just want to tell you, as someone who has read this cover to cover, I'm not sure even how many times now, it would be silly for me to tell you that I often do not leave this incredibly perplexed. I really, really do. Now, I'm really grateful for being raised in a church, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later, where I was given such a great love for Scripture and the Word and the words of God. But I can be honest and tell you, of course, that oftentimes I have read things here and and they have shocked me. And this might feel shocking to you. And, and I would just say, for those of us that, that feel very comfortable with the most conventional and orthodox and traditional of answers in, in the time that we are in, and, and, and maybe some of you here today, you haven't read much of this, and maybe you're asking questions about God or you're moved because you feel like something is happening in your life and you want to know what God's purpose is for your life, and you're hearing these odd stories and you're saying, wait, I didn't know that that was in the Bible. For those of us that are a little bit more familiar with these texts, Perhaps now is a time in in history where just coming full-headed and strong with our apologetics and those answers, it might be a time to empathize and step back and say, there's so much goodness here, but there's so much wildness here too. And and maybe when we have our friends or people that are asking questions, we can say, I'm confused by some of that as well. That takes me aback too. Has anyone experienced that? Am I the only one? Anyone else, anyone that has read Scripture and felt like, what? What is this? Just this morning, our very worship team was here. They were asking different questions about passages of Scripture, saying, well, what about this or what about that? I will also say, with all that said, for this particular instance, this is actually one of those sections or verses where just a little bit more of some context can help disarm some of this. Because if we were early hearers or listeners and we were scrolling through our news feed, and we heard this story of this oppressive ruler and these oppressed people, we would be able to see from this text or next fill in the blank that this is actually a foreshadowing or a reference to the law of retaliation. Historically, we know this as the lex talionis. And you've heard about this perhaps without even recognizing it. It's later on in Leviticus when the law is revealed, and we hear an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth or a life for a life. Several years ago when we were teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I taught through the Lex Talionis and Jesus speaking to these things. And in the ancient world, the law of retaliation was used as an escalation clause to help prevent people from having your tooth taken and then going and slaying your neighbor, right? 
And so the goal here with this justice and mercy was to try and bring fairness to situations where people could get consumed with natural human instincts. And so when we think about the Israelites being enslaved people and Moses preparing to go to Pharaoh, he is saying that God is revealing to him, you have oppressed my firstborn son, these people, for all these years. And this is life for life. I want you to take your pen and I want you to just draw a big line across your note sheet underneath that. Draw a big line across that and take a deep breath in, deep breath out. You guys okay? There's been a lot here so far. I'm going to tell you, we're just getting started. Oh, some of you guys are thinking, what in the world? Now, again, I said earlier that I was really grateful to grow up in a small little church where, I, I mean, it, I'm so grateful for the teaching that I got week in and week out. My Uncle Gary, I've told you about him before, he'd take this whiteboard and, and he'd tell these Bible stories and he'd draw these pictures and we would do these other things called Bible drills. Did anyone do Bible drills when you were a kid or was this just stuff they put us through? Okay, good. Thank you, Pam. Bible drills were this thing where we would take our physical Bibles and we'd put them on our heads or behind our back or like if we wanted to get wild, we'd do one of these. Okay, but we were typically here, and then Uncle Gary, one of our teachers, would call out a passage like, you know, Hezekiah 2, or Job 5, or Jude 1, and, and, and then there would be a verse that follows after that, and we'd have to get our Bible from whatever position it was in and open it up as fast as possible. So if there were Exodus 4, you know, some of us would be back here like, oh no, that's not there, right? And then we'd eventually find our way closer to the beginning, and then we'd have to stand up as quickly as possible, and we'd have to read that scripture out loud. And, and it makes me think about how, you know, that old lame joke about, you know, I went to school back in the old days, and I walked uphill both directions in the snow. And I could do that youth group joke, you know? It's like, you guys throw dodgeballs, and when I was a kid, I had my Bible on my head. <laughs> I was really grateful for that. But as we got older, after we learned our way around this library, by the time we got to middle school, our youth pastor, who was also my older cousin, he was studying at Hope International University, which is where I would go later on for undergrad work. And he introduced us to something that was really, really valuable. I would have been in sixth grade at the time when my youth pastor, Hans German, brought this word to this group of us from middle school on to high school. It was the word exegesis right? The idea of carefully studying the text and trying to get as close to original intent as possible with the humble acknowledgement that because of the distance and the time and the language and the complexities of both life and what's here, that we could recognize that we would never fully be able to 100% grasp every single thing here, but we could try really really, really hard, okay? And, and we would do this exercise where we were taught that you ought to be able to come to a text 
and we'd put a 15-minute timer on, and he would say, go, and we would have to write out a hundred questions about the text. So if we were studying Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, back all right, here's your paper, 15-minute timer, go. And we would just start writing question after question about these, what, 13 or so verses? I was in sixth grade. I could really tell that dodgeball story real good, okay? I remember being so grateful for that by the time I got to college. I remember writing my first exegetical paper, and before we got to the original language and, 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 and all those word studies and commentaries, I remember being so excited, and I'm sitting at the library, and I've got my laptop out, this big laptop, and all these commentaries around me, I'm sitting in the library, and I'm just feeling like, wow, I'm in college. I'm in college. And I'm going to write a really long paper about the Bible. I'm so excited. I really was excited. I'm not saying that facetiously. I was so excited. And I'm really, really grateful that I was taught to have a curiosity when coming here and to guard against projection because as a college student, I was affirmed in that the first thing we ought to do is read, 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 and just read and then start observing and asking questions. Ask, ask, ask. Come with curiosity. It's why decades later, not decades later, I'm not that old, but Later on in my life, when I would hear the rabbi say, turn it and turn it over again, for everything is in it, read it and grow old and gray with it, for there's nothing in it that is not for your life. I, I can think about being a little kid and then college going, okay, there's so much goodness here. This is incredible. I'm so glad that we were taught to ask those questions, but how does someone learn how to do that? I want to show you a quick picture on the screen. Uh, you're laughing. You see how sometimes you immediately see something, you start to laugh? <laughs> it's like I could read you, and let's keep this up, Mango. I could read you passages of Scripture, and you could be like, well, that's odd. That's kind of funny. I, you could read passages of Scripture, and you think like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to get near that. You could read passages of Scripture, and you think, I understand what that is. The way that I was taught to go about this exercise of asking questions, the very first time we did this, we weren't given a passage. We were actually, there was a cup that was placed on a table, and we were given five minutes, and we were supposed to ask as many questions as we could about a cup, right? So if you see this picture, and we were all in sixth grade, and we had our, our, our white paper, and, and five minutes was put on, we might say, well, who put that there? We could even say, what is that? We could say, I know that that's a mug, but what is that? And what's inside of it? And why is it in there? And what is it away from? And what's happening around it? And is there a drink in it? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it cereal because someone didn't have breakfast? Who is Mr. Rogers? And what does it mean to not be adequately prepared for all the people in my neighborhood? And you can take the picture, Mego, off of the screen, but do you see how if we were given an exercise with just a picture, and I asked you to ask all the questions, it could actually get really, really fun? It really could. Can you also see how easy it would be to just decide what is happening there? You might be able to say, well, cause and effect, well, that table 
was placed, and then a mug was put there, and, and then a Bible, and then Jed took this picture so that he could use it for a sermon illustration. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes, that's part of it, but really I'm just giving you insight into the difficulty of being around people all the time with the statement there of Mr. Rogers not preparing me for all the people in my neighborhood. The fact of the matter is, is when we come to Scripture, just like that exercise, it can be helpful to ask questions and not just throw things on it. Because we're going to get to one of the most difficult passages of Scripture. So look at verse 24 if you have your Bibles. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. On the way, at a place where they had spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. You know when you're taking those road trips and you see those rest stops along the freeway, right? You pull off in your car, maybe Moses and Zipporah and their two boys are in the back seat. They pull off. Okay, Moses in his car, he leans the seat back. Okay, he's about to rest. Then suddenly the Lord comes and wants to end life. What in the world? I did something very intentionally here, and you're filling the blanks, that some translations note to and others don't. But I said that on the way, the Lord went to kill him. He met him and tried to kill him. I just used that pronoun there instead of inserting the name Moses. And if you look at your translation, I don't know what you have. Maybe you have the NIV or the ESV or the NASB or I'm not sure what you have, but more than likely, if you go to that passage, Moses' name will be inserted there. It will say that on the way, the Lord met Moses and went to kill him. So your next fill in the blank is he is almost killed by the Lord. But what's fascinating about this is when we look at the language, again, it doesn't say Moses' name. And so there have been commentators that have tried to say that after the Lord has talked about these firstborn sons, as Moses is going to Egypt, the life of one of Moses' two boys is actually at risk for whatever reason. Now, we could go on this rabbit trail explaining that perspective. I'm just touching on that to tell you that there are people that would interpret it this way, but I'm going to take the, the larger perspective here, which is why most of your Bibles have used the word Moses and put it in there to refer to that antecedent. It's, it's Moses. Most of us would say that the Lord is coming, and at this rest stop, he, for whatever reason, wants to kill Moses. Did it get weird enough for you? This is the guy that is on the way to do this big thing, and the Lord appears and is going to kill him. And it's the scene where we see the anger, it seems, of God. And a few weeks ago when I taught on the birth story of Moses, I introduced you to the very only psalm that's attributed to Moses, Psalm chapter 90. And he talks about anger throughout this. Moses felt the Lord's anger throughout his life. In verse 11 of this song, he wrote, Who considers the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So teach us to count our days so that we may gain a wise heart. I read that whole psalm to you several 
weeks ago, and I'd encourage you throughout the course of this series, continue to go back to that one psalm, that one piece of poetry, that one song that we have that Moses penned, and you will see over and over different pieces of his story, whether or not he wrote it beforehand or after. There's so much that goes through there. But here comes the weirdest part. I'm going to read verse 25 through verse 26. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me, so let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Now this is a hard enough thing to do, stand on this stage and share. Okay, maybe you can feel a little bit more empathy to the, the difficulty of this task. The next time your, your boss has you present for a meeting, you know, about last quarter's revenues, that's a, that's a difficult thing. I, I know that that is. There are things in school. I, but just remember that my boss said, here's this. I think you'll do a great job of it. <laughs> okay? Hey, this is real stuff, right? This is like putting up the picture and going, what in the world is happening here. Now, I talked about projection. I did something that I've never done before when I was studying through this passage because after being about two-thirds of the way through with this message, I thought, I just, what are other people saying? So I YouTube. I've never done this. I just YouTube Zipporah, just Zipporah. Okay, there was this rap song about Zipporah, not like the Zipporah, but just a rap song called Zipporah. I listened to some of that. <laughs> and then I, I found, the next thing, I'm just being honest, the next thing I did was I, I watched a video that was a message on this particular passage. And, and I need to say that I'm a messed up person. I really, really am. And, and I know that for how many times I've done this over the years, I guarantee you I have said many, many things that if I could, I, could t I would take them back or I wish those things hadn't come out. And I just know as a flawed human being, I'm going to get a lot wrong. I'm going to get a lot wrong when it comes to interpreting and reading and, and teaching Scripture. I know there's a burden and responsibility to it, but I, I carry that very, very, I, I mean, I... It, it's a lot. You can hear me as I stutter through those words. It's a lot. It's a lot. And most of the time, I, I, really, I, I don't enjoy it. I'd rather not do it. But it's part of the rule. And so as I, I watch this video, I remember when I'm listening to others, which again, I don't do very often, uh, it's like I, I want to remember, we're all just, we're all trying. And, and this, this pastor he begins this message by saying he, he, he's received a word from the Lord, and it, it's put the fear of God in him. And, and he, he wants his audience, his people, to consider how the Lord might be calling them to repentance based off of what he has taken from this text. And when he gets to this scene, he, he says this story where he says, I believe that Jesus is in their living room, and Jesus, he, he has Moses in the headlock, and and so you're listening to this going, okay, okay. And he sets up stuff beforehand. But he's, he's careful to note that 
I'm not saying that I know that this is in there, but this is what I'm drawing from this text. And so he says that Moses is in a headlock of sorts from Jesus, and then Zipporah, she performs this circumcision on one of her sons, and she takes the foreskin, she actually touches the feet of Jesus, and Jesus releases Moses, and his life is spared. And the way that he interprets this text for his audience, he says, this is where the fear of the Lord has come upon me. I'm, I'm delivering this message today because I believe that I'm speaking to a crowd of individuals where, like Moses, there are many of you in this room who are passive men in your households, and you're not good leaders. And, and I think what happened is that Zipporah and Moses must have had conflict about this circumcision, and she was the headstrong woman, and she was probably more connected to her father, Jethro, Jethro and wasn't under the headship of Moses. And so I'm telling you, I'm speaking as I'm telling you that if you are in this audience, the fear of the Lord is on me, and I'm here to remind you that on the eve of the greatest moment in history, if you are getting in the way of your person, you need to take that up with the Lord. It was it was, it was uncomfortable. And actually, midway through the message, he invites his wife, and she, he has her sit on stage next to him as he is sharing these words. And, and I'm not here to say that I have all the, I really, really don't. I know there's well-meaning intention from this person as he is sharing But I'm not seeing that anywhere here. I don't know what story or Bible or version you got, but I'm pretty sure that's not in here. I'm pretty sure that that's not, that's not here. And I can understand why someone would project that onto this space, but that's really troubling to me. How is it possible that Moses' wife would somehow know. I, I really, I have all these questions. If we were doing that exercise, we would say, what in the world happened? Did, did Zipporah see the Lord? Was the Lord actually physically, physically present in that room? How did Moses, what was his life looking like? I mean, I could just ask the questions over and over and over again. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 17. Maybe you've heard this before. Verse 9, God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And perhaps you've heard it taught before that the way that Abraham and the families, his descendants, would be set apart is that there would be a physical cutting. And the word covenant in Hebrew actually means a cutting. There's a shedding of blood. And that this would be a sign of the purity and the separateness of these people and how they were supposed to go about living in this world. I know that it's odd language to us culturally, and we don't think about it in those terms today, but it's established here in Genesis 17 between God and Abraham as the way that his descendants are going to be beginning in their lives different. 
And then if you go to Genesis chapter 25, in verse 1, it says, Abraham took another wife, this was after Sarah, whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokosh, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And then later on it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And if you're like, Jed, it's already 1043. Are we really going to study through all of that right now? Don't worry, we're not. But do you see that Abram has more children? Did you know one of the names of one of those sons? Midian. Midian's sent away. He's one of the children that is sent away to his eastern country, and it would be Midian's descendants that would inhabit a place that's called Midian. And that's not weird, right? We have stadiums that are named after people and streets that are named after people. Folks have been doing this for a long time where you have an important figure and you name a location after that person. Midian was one of Abraham's sons who would have been circumcised. And it's no wonder that historians know that circumcision was actually something that wasn't just to the nation of Israel. It was actually something that was happening all over near eastern Mesopotamia, and it's not that surprising when we look at this story and we think about these people groups and peoples who are moving about, and that circumcision would be a part of their lives. And so here's your next fill in the blank. Zipporah mysteriously steps in to save him with the covenant ritual. That is what happened. And I don't know what circumstances led up to Zipporah knowing that this is what should be done? I don't even know what in the world was happening in that scene where the Lord is coming to kill him. There's no one that, that knows. This is what we have. But what we can see is that in some way, this act would have been familiar to her. And rather than relying on us as far foreigners to this text and our stories about what we think this says about having our households in order, I'd prefer that we think about the people groups that are most closely related to these texts. And by the time that rabbis were studying this, the great teachers of the Jewish and Hebrew faith it's really, really fascinating that instead of them having a story where Moses and Zipporah are in conflict and she needs to go sent, be sent home to Jethro, did you know that Zipporah becomes this mysterious figure to them? Because this is the second of three times that she's going to be mentioned in the scriptures. And they revere her in a way that is so wild because she's the only woman in their scriptures that performs the covenant ritual. She's the only one. She's the outlier. And it's another sign of Yahweh doing things far outside of what you expect. Yahweh, you, I will be what I will be. I'm not going to do it the way that you expect me to do it. I will be what I will be. And we could spend a lot of time 
thinking about why it was so important for the rabbis to study and see the ambiguity here. They actually have this tradition then where she's sent back to be with Jethro because we don't see her again until chapter 18. And unlike this other sermon that I heard that she was sent away because she almost got in the way of his grand Moses moment, the rabbis interpreted Zipporah and the kids as being sent back to Jethro because Moses has this realization that, wow, we're not messing around here. And I, I think you need to go back home. You be safe, and I'll get back to you someday in the future. And that's the way that those stories are curated. And part of what I can say is if, if you're in this room and you've ever in any way looked at the limelight that is given to the figures like the Moses and you find yourself more like a Zipporah, whether you're a woman or just someone who has felt like you're not cast up as the figure that everyone should look like and maybe even the things that you've done have been spoken about in this way or that way, just remember that God's concern for you is it's intimate and he's with you in that as well. Let's finish reading this story. Exodus 4, your next fill in the blank is Moses is partially reunited. And we'll close out. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had charged him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Remember earlier on I said that some commentators get stuck on the fact that they think that Moses is telling a fib, right? I want to go back and see if my family is still alive. Well, he didn't tell Jethro the whole thing. He, he didn't talk about the burning bush and all that stuff, but there is truth in there. Consider, he hasn't seen his big brother in four decades. This is, if you want to write this down for about, this is the eye of the storm, basically, in Moses' life, right here. This is the eye of the storm. It's this very sweet scene. Chaos is about to ensue. It, it's going to get, nar if you think it's weird, it's going to keep getting weirder. This is the eye of the storm. And we have this moment where this 80-year-old man is out in the wilderness. His wife and his kids are no longer there. And his big brother, 83 or so years old, is moved by the Lord to go out into the wilderness. And he meets him there. And it says that he kissed him. And I know it's easy to get hung up in all these things in Moses' story in his life, but for a little bit, just for this little section, I think about what that moment would have looked like for these two old men who haven't seen each other. They were separated at birth through this adoption. We have all this stuff that we can speculate on, but we know that they're separated. And then all these years later, they're reunited. There's a hug and there's a kiss. And Moses, can you imagine Moses, the, this stuttering guy? Like, I, I stutter all the time. And, and Moses is just like, I, trying to tell the story to Aaron. Like, Aaron, I, I just, I, I, I saw, uh, I, 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 and Aaron's like, it's okay, little bro. It's okay. It's okay. Slow down, slow down. And Moses eventually tells him, and they are about to begin this. And later on, their big sister Miriam's going to join them as well. It's the eye before the storm. And it's this little piece that reminds us that it's still people right? It's still just people. 
So I just have a few takeaways. We've got to run through this stuff before we conclude these worships through song. Your first on the blank in this section, as we think about application of sorts, is sometimes we need to read our Bibles and allow ourselves to be surprised by the wildness. Sometimes that's the best that we've got. And we could go check YouTube or Google or ChatGPT, and we can look at books and see what other commentators and scholars have said. We could wait to hear a message. I bet years ago when you read this, you're just waiting to hear a message someday about this section of Scripture. I mean, all sorts of things, but sometimes we just need to be surprised by the wildness. And, and statistically, we know that more than any other time in our history as a people in this country, we're hardly reading this. And, and I know that I, I, I happen to be in this pastoral vacation. It's a part of my job to come forward and, and share from this place, but it's also why I separate my quiet time and my study time. My quiet time in the morning has nothing to do with what comes out here. And I don't say that as a way to trumpet the stuff that I'm doing. I'm just saying that I need to be reminded when I come to this daily, I, I just read it and I'm not trying to solve the world's problems and I'm not even trying to figure out everything that's in there or just study it deeply. I just want to read it. And I challenge you, if you haven't done that in a while, just started reading this without an agenda or without looking to find a particular thing, just read it and be surprised. Just read it and be surprised. Here's your next fill in the blank. From this story, we can perhaps take a little lesson that we ought not give up interceding on behalf of others. And often this means don't stop praying and then look to respond to unexpected opportunities. And I know that that's extracting a lot from here. We don't see Zipporah praying about what we should do, but we do see a moment where she steps in and for whatever reason, she is able to perform that covenant ritual. And for those of us in this room, I don't think that you and I are going to have a Zipporah-like moment. I don't think so <laughs> along those lines. But in terms of looking around in this room, can I remind you that every single one of you, every single one of you is an answer to someone else's prayer. Every single one of you. There isn't a person in this room with a beating heart at some point in time, maybe even right now, there are people who are interceding on your behalf that are praying for you, that are doing it while they're driving or in their closets or when they wake up in the morning as they're going on a walk or during their lunch break. They're praying for you. They might be praying for you because you are seeking after God and you're wondering and you're asking questions. They might be praying for you because of a diagnosis. They might be praying for you because of some circumstance in your relational history or current time. But someone is praying for you. And if you don't have someone that you know is praying for you and that feels even disheartening because you really don't think anyone is, I'd encourage you at the end of this service when our prayer team comes up, because we believe in a God who sees us and is a part of what's happening, if you've looked up and you've thought, what in the world is going on there? I'd encourage you, step forward, meet one of our awesome prayer team members and just share what's happening and experience the power of another human being who can intercede on your behalf. I'd like to invite the worship team up. Your last fill in the blank is the wildest 
surprise when we talk about reading our scripture is always how God chooses to rescue. That's the wildest surprise. Do you remember earlier how the Lord says to Moses that Israel is like a firstborn son to him? Right? And, and we see this bit with the covenant ritual, and we don't have all this time. I've already invited up the team to make sure that we don't spend some, all this time talking about what the covenant is and the difference between parity and suzerainty covenant, but we see there's a reason why we call it the old covenant and the new covenant, because if we're hung up on these terms, I can have you remember and see that the way that Scripture is working toward the reconciliation of all things through Jesus the Christ. By the time first century followers of Jesus are reflecting on their religious and spiritual history and how it's blown just upside down by this man, Jesus the Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, they're coming to terms with those things that they thought had to be this way. And so Paul can even write to the church in Galatia that neither circumcision or uncircumcision of the flesh for those who are in Christ Jesus is anything. All that counts is faith working itself through love. And later on in chapter 6, all that counts is new creation. In other words, we see these terms. We see this wildness. If we tried to just figure all of that out, we would miss that it is working itself toward the greatest rescue. And we saw Israel being the firstborn son. We see that throughout scriptures, it seems like God is choosing the younger son, right? We think about Abel, the younger brother of Cain. We think about Moses, the younger brother of Aaron. And before him, we, we thought about Jacob, the younger brother of Esau, and Joseph, Jacob's youngest son. And I should have went in order, but I'm just thinking about this stuff right now. And then we have Jesus the Christ. And we know that he's not the younger brother to Israel in like this way that would happen in a regular family. But I do think it is really incredible that when Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We have this son of God who comes later after these people groups, this, this one people group, to then invite all of us, so that all of us could sit in this room and be surprised by the wildness, not just that is here, but the wildness of the God who is working in your life right now. And so as we worship through these songs this morning, and as you prepare to leave today, would you remember that the son of of God, Jesus the Christ, that faith and belief in him gives us all the power and the right to become children of God. Would you stand and join us to worship? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.